Good morning. Uh, this morning's Bible reading comes from Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 to 12, uh, on pages 980. That's Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 to 12, page 980. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed. But because of his oaths and the dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted. And he had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl. She carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Please do sit down. It'd be great if you could open that passage that Rick read to us. It's on page 980 in the church Bibles, page 980. I was thinking the other day, I'm not sure I tell you enough to turn to the Bible and make sure you do, because you need to check that what I'm saying comes from the Bible and not somewhere else. So, Matthew chapter 14, page 980. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you will help us to engage with your word that we may experience it as your living and powerful word to us, and that we may hear what you're saying to us today, in this year, in our context, in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Three things that you should never mix, so they say, religion, sex, and politics. Well, I, I, there's some confusion, isn't there, about politics and sex? I, I mean, we're a bit conflicted about that because there are times when it turns out that somebody's private life proves to be inimical to their political life. But we're, we're conflicted about that, I think. And it's true, too, that we do have debates about what religion should or should not say about sex. But the one thing that almost everybody has agreed on is that religion and politics should be kept entirely separate. They are two completely different things, concerned with two different things. And the church, of course, ought to be a politics-free zone. Because you see, politics is to do with earthly things. It's to do with things like how you order society. It's to do with economics. It's to do with government. It's to do with things like taxation. 
All those here and now kind of things. And of course there are political parties and political ideologies and people disagree. On the other hand, Christianity. Christianity is about God. It's about spiritual things. It's about heaven. It's not earthly. So we need to keep Christianity and politics separate. Except, except, there is something of a clue for us in the words of Jesus as he comes announcing why he's come and what he's come to do. In chapter 4 and verse 17, Jesus gives this announcement of his mission and also what the response he's looking for is. Here's the language. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, that word kingdom ought to be a bit of a clue because kingdom is a political word. It is about government. It is about rule. It is about the ordering of society to some kind of end. And so that means it involves social policy. It involves economics. What Jesus is announcing is profoundly political. It is about government, and it is about the kingdom of heaven, so it is about the arrival, the breaking in of God's political agenda, God's rule. And Jesus comes not only as the one who announces that, but the one who embodies that rule. He is the king, the ruler the government, and the response to that, that he calls for is repent and believe. That language of kingdom of heaven, or in the other gospels it's often kingdom of God, it means exactly the same thing, is profoundly political. And it goes back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. When God made the world, he delegated responsibility for government to human beings to rule in such a way that society and the whole of creation would flourish in the way that God had established the world to flourish. And human beings are tasked with the responsibility of government. And the reality is that we have utterly messed that and so when Jesus comes, he comes announcing in the midst of the political climate of his day, the coming of the kingdom of God, of God's rule, God's government. And so that statement is profoundly political. By the way, don't please imagine that people put Jesus to death just because he talked about God and forgiveness and love and heaven. They saw the bigger picture. 
that Jesus was the Christ, the King, the one who was claiming authority. And that means, that means that the church of Jesus Christ is profoundly political as well. Church should never be a politics-free zone. So over these next three weeks, I want to explore some themes to do with what it means when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven. I want to talk about the political climate into which the kingdom of heaven came and is still present. And I want to look at the responsibilities that we have as outposts of the kingdom. If you like, every local church is an embassy of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and every member is to some degree or other an ambassador, a spokesperson for the kingdom, both in how they live and what they say. So I want to explore those things over the next three weeks. But let's have a look at the political climate into which the kingdom comes. And it's exemplified very, very starkly in this ruler, Herod. And what we get with Herod, and here we get an insight into Herod. There are other things in the rest of Matthew's gospel about Herod. But here we get an insight into Herod. But it's not just an insight into Herod. It's an insight into how human politics, human government functions and how dysfunctional it can be. Let's have a look at it. First of all, I want you to notice that Herod's rule, he styles himself as king, but notice what Matthew tells us in chapter 14, he's actually a tetrarch. He isn't the king. The ruler is the emperor, and he hasn't even inherited the word king from Herod the Great, He's a tetrarch. But nevertheless, he styles himself as a king, and he rules, and he has authority, and he's based largely in the north where Jesus was brought up and where his ministry kicks off around Lake Galilee. Here are four characteristics of Herod's rule that we can see demonstrated in this story that Rick read to us from chapter 14. First of all, first of all it is characterized by moral perversion. In fact, Herod flaunts the moral dysfunction of his own life. What's happened is that Herod has divorced his own wife, which cost him dearly politically because his wife's father was not very pleased about this and sent an army against Herod, and Herod got thrashed. So he's divorced his wife, but not only that, he has married his brother's wife. That would have been counted as incest in that culture. So verses 3 and 4, Herod has divorced his own wife in order to marry his brother's wife. That is a moral scandal. But for Herod, that doesn't matter. Moral perversion is of no consequence to him whatsoever. Secondly, his rule is characterized by a shallow 
pragmatism. Notice in verse 5, he wants to put John the Baptist to death. The reason he wants to put John the Baptist to death is because John has been calling him out about his marriage to his brother's wife. And the reason that upsets Herod is because the people respect John. And so for John to be publicly saying Herod should not be doing this is politically dangerous for Herod. Please don't think of first century Palestine as a quiet, peaceful place. Insurrections and violence was not uncommon. And Herod was by no means a popular leader. And so it's dangerous for Herod to allow John the Baptist to continue. And so he arrests him. He really wants to put him to death. But you notice he's in conflict he doesn't want to let him go, which would, of course, be the just thing to do, because John the Baptist hasn't done anything wrong, because that compromises his moral perversion that he's blatantly living with his husband, his brother's wife. On the other hand, if he puts John the Baptist to death, he risks a political fallout. Do you see he's caught in a bind? And so what does he opt for? Well, what I've called a shallow pragmatism. Verse 5, Herod wanted to kill John, but was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. Nothing to do with conviction here. It's a shallow pragmatism in order to maintain as strong a grip on power as possible. Moral perversion shallow pragmatism. Thirdly, I'm not quite sure what to call this. I, I almost called it, I, I wanted to call it the cult of the self. It's a self-centered, self-focused leadership. Verse 6 tells us of a birthday party. So Herod invites the great and the good, the elite, the movers and the shakers, the people whose opinion counts. Maybe there were some Roman citizens there, Roman leaders, I don't know. But you can be absolutely sure that the hoi polloi were not there. This was the elite of first century Palestinian society. And they're there. And Herod's impressing them with the wine and the food. And as the celebrations go on, I have no doubt that Herod and his guests have consumed a considerable amount of excellent wine. And then Herodias' daughter is asked to dance. And so it sounds as if she's a fairly young girl. She comes and she dances. There's no suggestion that this is an erotic dance. I, I know that, 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 that you know, people talk about Salome and the, the dance of Salome. And there's a, a famous opera by uh, Richard Strauss. Uh, which portrays it with the dance of the seven veils. So if you're into that kind of thing, it's great music. Uh, but it's not from the text. In all likelihood, she's a young girl, and Herod is simply impressed by what she's done. And he makes this extravagant promise accompanied by oaths. I will give you whatever you like. 
And the young girl, prompted by our mother, goes to her mother and says, Mom, what should I ask for? And Herodias, remember Herodias, Herod's wife, was his brother's wife before. Uh, clearly, is not happy with John the Baptist. Thorn in the side for her. And so what does she do? She says to her daughter, I want you to ask Herod for the head of John the Baptist on a plate. Notice what it says in verse 9. The king was distressed. Distressed. Well, you can understand why, can't you? Because he's been trying to hold together a compromise. And the compromise is now severely threatened. On the one hand, he can't let John go because that would be politically dangerous. On the other hand, he's reluctant to put him to death because people would be upset by that and that jeopardizes his political standing. But now he's distressed. Notice, because of his oaths and his dinner guests, you see his reputation is now on the line. Is Herod a man of his word? Even though he makes outrageous promises, is he the man? Is he up to it? Is he willing to take the head of John the Baptist? Is he that kind of king? You can see the dilemma he's in, can't you? But notice, because of his oaths and his dinner guests, Herod's reputation, his status, with the elite mattered more to him than principle, justice, truth. It was his reputation. And so to save face, he has the request granted. A leadership that was focused on self, and how he was perceived. And lastly, last characteristic I want to draw attention to is a cavalier disregard for any sense of personal accountability to God. A cavalier disregard. John the Baptist comes as the culmination of a long line of prophetic voices who come speaking for God. So when it says in verse 4, quoting John, who said, it is not lawful for you to have her Herodias as your wife, John is not merely expressing conventional morality. He isn't simply restating the legal situation. He isn't expressing personal opinion. When he says it's not lawful, he is saying God has said you should not do this. That's what not lawful means. And so John the Baptist is the voice of God in the ear of Herod. And it's a reminder to Herod that he is answerable to a higher power, to a divine authority, to the king over all kings, God himself. You may be asking yourself the question, so why does John the Baptist focus on something to do with sex? 
I mean, after all, Herod was a fairly ruthless guy, and there are all kinds of examples, even from the Gospels, let alone from secular historians of the time, of Herod's ruthlessness. Why does he focus on this? Well, here's one reason. Because it's profoundly personal. That's why. See, this is about Herod. It isn't just about the manner of his rule. This goes to the very heart of who Herod is and the kind of man that he is. What does Herod do in response? In order to protect his reputation, he has the prophetic voice silenced. Cavalier disregard for any sense that he is ultimately answerable to a divine authority. It's interesting though, isn't it? He silences the prophetic voice although he can't get away from it. Herod is a haunted man. Do you notice in verses 1 and 2? John the Baptist has been dead for some time. And then Herod hears reports about Jesus and what he's been saying and what he's been doing. And somehow the voice seems to return. There are echoes of John the Baptist in his head that are reawakened by what Jesus is doing and he says to his attendants in verse 2, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Seemingly, although he's silenced the prophetic voice, he can't silence his own conscience. Four characteristics then of this rule that we see in Herod, moral perversion, shallow pragmatism, the cult of the self, and the repudiation of any, any sense of divine accountability. Well, you said that's very interesting. That's the kingdom. That's the, the, the political climate in which the kingdom of God comes with the coming of Jesus. What's that got to do with us? I mean, Scott Morrison is scarcely Herod, is he? He is still our prime minister, I think. What's this got to do with us? Well, the answer is everything. Herod is undoubtedly on a spectrum, and towards the end of that spectrum, towards the vicious end of that spectrum. But it is a spectrum, and all human politics and government is on the same spectrum. All of it. You see, that's why it's such a challenge when Jesus comes and says the kingdom of heaven is drawing near because it is a direct challenge to the kingdoms, the governments, the rules, the political theories that we have and the governments that we run. It is a challenge to our democracy. It is a challenge to totalitarianism. 
Because what we see so starkly in Herod is evident in all human political systems and governments, to a greater or lesser degree. Moral compromise, seen in all kinds of ways, not least at times the tendency to want to separate private and public life. What a person is privately should not in any way infringe their public standing and position. It's true, in our culture we're conflicted about that, but it's still there, isn't it? What does a person's private life have to do with their political competence? To which the answer of the kingdom of God is, we are what we are in private as much as what we are in public. In fact, what we are in private says more about us and our integrity and our moral status than what we are in public. Tendency for moral compromise, a shallow pragmatism, a concern to preserve power, even though that may mean sacrificing convictions and integrity, including convictions about virtue and justice and fairness and goodness. Because what matters is power and the maintenance of power. And in our system, votes. Shallow pragmatism. Concern about personal reputation, how a politician or a leader appears, their status, their standing, especially in the eyes of those who are considered to have influence and to can't, and who can make things happen or not. And a lack of humility when it comes to any sense that all politicians, all governments are answerable to the king who is above all kings, and he has already published his political agenda. And all governments and all politicians will be measured against the political agenda of the kingdom of heaven, not whichever party they happen to belong to. And therefore, there ought to be a profound humility for those who are in positions of government because they are answerable to the king. So what does Herod have to do with us? A great deal. And there are some implications for us, and I want to give you two this morning, and then we'll continue to look at this next week. So live well, don't do too much surfing. I gather the sharks are a bit snappy at the moment. Number one, to a greater or lesser degree and sooner or later, always, the kingdoms of this world will be in hostile relationship with the kingdom of heaven. 
That means sooner or later, always, to a greater or lesser degree, we will find that the political system that government any sort of government is hostile to the people of God. There are times when that's more extreme. What's going on in China at the moment is at the more extreme end. What we experience in Sydney is nothing like that. But the reality is that the coming of the kingdom of God is not the coming of Jesus as the king to tell us that our political institutions and our political systems and our way of doing government is largely okay. It's to tell us that it's fundamentally flawed and broken and sinful and that we need to respond in repentance and faith and recognize Jesus as the king and acknowledge his government and his rule. By the way, if you know your Bibles, uh, you may sense some echoes in this story. Does it ring any bells from the Old Testament? It ought to. Does it remind you of another king and his wife and a prophet in the Old Testament? As I say, if you know your Bibles, it ought to. And if it doesn't ring bells, maybe you should read your Bibles a little bit more. There was another prophet, wasn't there, in the Old Testament? In fact, John is, has already been linked with this man, Elijah. John is the Elijah who is to come, says Jesus. And Elijah had his issues with the king of Israel and his wife. And his wife wanted to kill him. And so did Ahab the king as well, although he again feared, in this case, Elijah. Elijah escaped with his life. John the Baptist doesn't. And the one who follows John the Baptist won't survive with his life either. You see, what we are being shown here is that there is a hostility between human government, any kind of human government, to some degree or other, and the kingdom of heaven. And the second thing and last thing I want to leave you with is this. It's to take the example of John the Baptist. We're going to explore this a little later in the next couple of weeks. John the Baptist is the voice of God to the king. The church is called to be the voice of God to those in power by the way that we live and what we are as the community of Jesus Christ and what we say. And those two things need to go together. But the church is called to be an embassy of the kingdom, an outpost of the kingdom, and therefore to speak with the voice of the king into our culture and into power. And sometimes doing that will be extremely costly.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us, and we ask that you would give us wisdom about how we apply it. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing.